the quiet resolve of being able to choose your battles and working with your closest community or trying to make an impact in your own home, in your own relationships, with your own children, with your own family, with your own colleagues is just as important and just as vital as women that have spoken up and that have had an impact on a grand scale. It's all a question of ripples. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. This conversation in Raise 1000 Voices is with Rabia Sadiq. Rabia is an international humanitarian lawyer, retired British Army senior officer, former war crimes and terrorism prosecutor and hostage survivor. She has undertaken humanitarian aid work in Asia, South America, Europe and the Middle East, for which she has been decorated by Queen Elizabeth II. Having survived a hostage crisis in Iraq in 2005, Rabia sued the British government for discrimination when both the military and the government tried to cover up her involvement in the incident, which saw her leading hostage negotiations for the release of two British special forces illegally kidnapped and detained by Iraqi-based terrorists. Rabia was held hostage for over eight hours and subjected to cruel and unusual treatment in front of her male colleagues. After their eventual rescue, Rabia's colleagues were recognised psychologically supported and decorated for their efforts and bravery. However, Rabia was gagged, ignored, and ordered to never speak of the role she played on that fateful day where she almost lost her life. As a result of her betrayal at the hands of her military superiors and the then Prime Minister of Great Britain, Rabia was diagnosed with PTSD and after her recovery, she held both the British Army and government to account for their systematic discrimination of women and ethnic minorities. Her landmark case made international news and saw the floodgates open for many similar cases. It heralded profound changes in defence and public policy, attitudes and the support offered to female soldiers serving on the front line, ethnic minorities and military personnel suffering PTSD. Rabia's best-selling memoir, Equal Justice, My Journey as a Woman, a Soldier and a Muslim, was published by Pan Macmillan in 2013, and work is currently underway to adapt this to a movie. She is also currently writing her second book, A Beautiful Revolution, a book about the power we all have to be the change in our lives and in the world around us. Rabia is now a multi-award-winning storyteller, inspirational speaker, leadership consultant, media commentator, and human rights advocate. Peace and the sustainability of our planet is what drives her, but her biggest challenge and joy is being a mother to her young triplet boys. And it is all of these incredible facets that wrap together to bring a rich and powerful conversation. Her heartbreak for the world is palpable, even while she creates a sense and a tone of hope. Rabia brings an intelligence, warmth, and vulnerability that gives us a global perspective at the same time as sharing with us the women's names that we should know. 
She speaks with an unshakable conviction about her role in the world, and together we go deep into the power of a story, especially when story lives in the intersection with lived experience. This is a conversation that will wrap you up in the most unexpected and delightful of ways. So please make a cup of tea, pour your favourite wine, and settle into this conversation with Rabia Sadiq. I would love to welcome Rabia Sadiq to this next episode of Raise 1000 Voices. Welcome to the show, Rabia. Lovely to be with you. Thanks for having me, Jacqueline. Oh, it's my pleasure, my absolute pleasure. Now, I'm going to open with a couple of quick questions that we ask with everyone, and that is, where in the world are you right now? I am in Perth uh, in Western Australia, and it's sunny and it's a beautiful spring day. Amazing. We've actually got the same on the opposite side of the country here in Brisbane, so we're both really fortunate today. So, Rabia, I know you as an author with the heart of an activist, a lawyer, a humanitarian, and an amazing mother, and so many more things. How would you describe who you are, and can you tell us a little bit about how you've got here? Okay. Well, I guess, you know, all of the titles and the, the hats that you describe are accurate. I guess I would describe myself as someone who has tried her absolute best to live a life in alignment with my values and live a life bigger and beyond myself, very much committed to serving others. Yeah. And being guided by the values that I hold dear. Yeah. So I guess that's how I would describe myself and someone who is deeply committed to humanity and trying to do what I can in some small way to leave the world a better place than I entered it. I think that is actually is a common sense of most of the women that we're talking to at the moment. What have been the pivotal moments throughout your career that have landed you to where you are now? So those moments that really change the trajectory for better or for worse? Yeah, pivotal moments probably in my life, not just in my career. I would say, first of all, being the child of a an Indian Muslim immigrant yeah. growing up in Australia in the 70s when white Australia policy was still very much alive. I think being a survivor of child sexual abuse, mm-hmm. uh, witnessing the prejudice and the discrimination that my father but also my white Australian mother experienced, yeah. particularly back in the 70s and the 80s. And I suppose also my first few years practicing law, Mm. I was very, very fortunate that I was able to make a decision as a young woman, thanks to a wonderful school that I was sent to, where its leaders, its staff believed in me. And I finally started realizing that I was worthy of better than perhaps I'd experienced. And I was also capable of dreaming and realizing my dreams. I made a decision at that point that I wasn't going to let the abuse and the injustice that I had suffered consume me and destroy me and define me and that I was going to use them as a positive legacy in my life and hopefully in the lives of others. And that led to a decision to study and practice law. So I think in terms of the pivotal moments that I had then in my career as a lawyer would have been the work that I did alongside some incredible communities that taught me so much about humanity. So, you know, our Indigenous and remote communities, victims of family and domestic violence, asylum seekers and refugees. And that led me to my calling, which was to practice in humanitarian law, where I then spent about a decade and a half, very privileged time working in theatres of conflict, 
war zones, areas of great poverty, and trying to tell the stories and advocate for people who'd suffered the most appalling human rights abuses and people that taught me every day the power of hope and the power of love and the ability that we all have to be resilient and to forgive and to do extraordinary things, even in the most exceptional and overwhelming and extreme circumstances. I think you've almost yeah. answered the question that popped up for me then, which is you described some of the sorts of theatres and arenas that very few people, women particularly, dare to tread. You know, remote Indigenous communities, the theatres of war, the human rights abuses and those sorts of exposures. What is it that you think has grafted into how you show up in the world now as a result of that? You know, there's the expression, you can't unsee what you've seen. And I think that's very true, speaking personally for me. I think when you have seen great suffering, when you have witnessed great injustice, and Mm. when you have seen people living with so little and still being able to find the beauty and the joy and the hope despite all chaos around them and despite living through such tragedy and such loss and such pain, it can't do anything other than give you a lifelong different perspective on the world. And, you know, in my case, it impacted me profoundly in terms of what's really wrong in our world and what are the things that we should really be worrying about and really fighting for and speaking up about And I guess the greatest lesson that my career and my journey has taught me is this concept of the power of one, the power Mm -hmm. that each and every one of us has to create ripples of change. And I think that's forever changed me and impacted on me and informed and influenced so many choices I've made and decisions I've made both professionally and personally. It's interesting because one of the challenges that particularly, as you know, the work that we're doing and who we're speaking to with this podcast is around women. And it seems particularly prevalent that they feel as though if they can't reach a thousand people that they should just stay close and stay low. So I love this concept of the power of one. Can you tell me a little bit more about when women need to actually give themselves what you've been witness to, if a woman needs to give herself permission to understand that the power of one is all that it takes? What would yeah. insights would you give her? Well, it's interesting. I think particularly in the Western world, you know, in the last few years, we've witnessed the Me Too movement and we've witnessed women rising up and raising their voices and speaking truth to power. We've also witnessed the response to that by, Mm -hmm. you know, the wealthy and the influential in trying to silence women. And I think also in the Western world, as we call for greater equality, there has been this emphasis on needing to be extraordinary and needing to be special and needing to be a warrior. And I think for me, particularly in the last couple of years, strength and power have taken on different meaning for me and I define them differently. You know, the quiet resolve of being able to choose your battles and working with your closest community or trying to make an impact in your own home, in your own relationships, with your own children, with your own family, with your own colleagues is just as important and just as 
vital as you know, women that have spoken up and that have had an impact on a grand scale. It's all a question of ripples. Mm. And the impact you have on one person has the capacity to turn into the impact that others with a big voice, with a big profile have on, you know, maybe a hundred or thousands of people. It's a question of quality as opposed to scale. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting observation. There's been a lot of conversations recently as well around, you know, why do we have to scale business? Why do we have to scale voice? Why do we have to scale impact? And whilst I have some very firm views on that, what I would love to know is thinking about all of that that you've done, you've obviously had this real shift in perspective and those distinctions Mm. have changed. Mm. What is it that breaks your heart about when you see women unable to or unwilling to speak up? Oh, I think this is this is part of the blessing and the curse of being an empath, empath and feeling things very deeply and a lot of things break my heart. At the moment what's breaking my heart is seeing the women in Iran yeah you know mobilizing and coming together and creating a nationwide and a worldwide movement uh, against the extremist powers there that have been oppressing them for so long. It took a crisis, it took a tragedy, it took a young, beautiful, brave woman dying, being murdered. And so, you know, seeing the oppression of women in Iran, seeing the oppression of girls and women who just want their human right of being able to live peacefully and safely and be educated in Afghanistan, um, seeing women in in our country that work in caring roles as childcare workers, as aged workers, as nurses, not being valued, uh, mm. not being rewarded and compensated for the vital work that they do, that breaks my heart. Those are the sorts of things that break my heart that frustrate me. But on the flip side, seeing all of these women and girls that we're talking about, finding their voice, speaking up, demanding better, imploring for equality, that also gives me so much hope. Absolutely. How do you define equality? It's a word that is bandied around. It's almost become a catchphrase. You come from, as we've already talked about, your career and your personal life has had you exposed to so many different genres and arenas and theatres. How do you define equality? What does that mean to you? It's interesting because I don't usually like to use the word equality. Equity resonates more strongly with me. Yeah. But if we were talking about how I define the concept of equality, it's the ability and the freedom to make choices. Yeah, freedom of choice. Yeah, one of and, the, it's, and it's a human right. It is a human right. And it's one that actually we quite often as women, not we collectively necessarily, but we do cede it without realising. We do actually give away that power without realising it. For the women out there who are saying that's incredible, you've got this amazing background, you made some great choices, who don't feel that they have the power to make choice, where would you tell them to start? Because you have seen women in the worst of situations. Yeah. Start with small achievable goals and wins. So start with something in your life, something in your home, something within your control that you can change. There is so much that's happening around us and to us that we can't control. 
but there is always something, even some small thing that we have control over. Start with that and mm. use that as the seed of hope and of confidence from which, you know, further actions can grow. Yeah. So it's it's about looking for even even the smallest, most finite opportunities and starting there. Yeah, that's actually become quite resonant across all of our conversations so far is actually about starting with something and building on it, being a little bit brave today and a little bit braver tomorrow and adding them up. So I love that you've actually brought that through because it is definitely coming through for everybody. When you look at women around the world who do raise their voice, you mentioned how the collective in Iran is coming together in the most powerful way. Mm. Me Too really took off and women were able to find the inspiration to find their voice. Mm. What powerful feminine voices in the world at the moment really inspire you? Oh, wow. Gosh, we're living in an extraordinary time where there are so many powerful women and, well, women with voices that are making an impact. Malala, of course, Malala Yousafzai, Greta Thunberg and the global movement and and attention that she has drawn to climate change and protecting our planet. Gosh, who else? I think, you know, Julia Gillard in her time and in the work that she's also been doing since being Prime Minister of Australia. I actually quite often often say to people, Julia Gillard, I accidentally heard her speak many years ago at an intimate event in Melbourne post her prime ministership. And she is absolutely one of my favourite speakers now. Her intelligence, her humour, her conviction is extraordinary. And you just mentioned Tarana Burke, who is probably one of the most powerful females that I love on this planet. Well, she started the Me Too movement, didn't she, really? she did. Um, And, you know, closer to home, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, and a woman called Dania Mani who people haven't heard of, a lot of people haven't heard of. Dania actually was the first one to lodge a complaint in the New South Wales Parliament about sexual harassment and abuse working as an employee in Parliament. And she was actually the force and the instigator of what then became the review and the report into the treatment of staff in Parliament and people don't know her name. and I think we need to know her name. You ne- we need to know her name. And, and, and in fact, Dania and Dania's story raises this whole issue around intersexuality and the fact that sadly we live in a world and we live in a country where some women's voices are louder and get more attention than others. And it's usually women of colour, brown and black women like Dania, whose voices aren't heard or whose voices aren't reported on as much by the media. And I think that's something that is really important to call out when we have these conversations. Yeah, we need to call that out. That is something that I didn't know and something that I know that our audience are all going to go and look further into because that's an extraordinary step to take. Yeah, I I would implore people to, well, two things, to go and find out more about Dania and what she did because Brittany Higgins and others came after her. Um, And also um, Dania's story can be found in a book that I would implore everyone that's listening to this podcast to read, which is called um, How Many More Women by Jennifer Robinson, who is a well-known Australian human rights lawyer. Yes. 
And her co-author, who is in the same chambers as her, is a fellow human rights lawyer, um, Kata Yoshida. So they have just last week published a book called How Many More Women and Danya's Story, as well as other compelling stories of brave women is, are in that book. And it's a, it's a book we all absolutely should read. Yeah, we will. I will be getting that as soon as we come off the recording of this episode. And I encourage everybody out there to go and find that. These are the untold stories that we actually need to know about. And obviously, she's now being published, but we actually need to know and talk about them with conversational ease. They need to be just part of our conversation. Absolutely. So when you look at all of those incredible women, and I am so grateful you just brought Dani to our attention, unbelievably so. But when you look at all these incredible women, what do you think it is that's kind of like almost like a through line through all of them? What it is that they hold in common when it comes to their voice and their conviction? I think it's the courage of their convictions to stand up and to speak up. Yeah. for what they're truly passionate about, for what they truly care about, and to be willing to experience the consequences, the good and the bad, in mm-hmm. order to impact change in ways that they truly, truly are committed to. Yeah. And that takes great courage. Incredible courage. That also does kind of lead me into what I'd love to know next, which is, So we talked about these amazing women, these strong female voices. Who is it that inspires you? Where do you find your inspiration? Because you're staring down the barrel of so much every day from a humanitarian perspective. And you're also balancing that with the very commercial reality of being an accomplished professional speaker and author now. Who is it that inspires you? Where do you draw that from? Oh, wow. So many different inspirations. I think, you know, I'd have to start with my parents. They were my first heroes and role models. Yeah. And in terms of, I guess, my humanitarian work, Mahatma Gandhi was a big hero for me, Mother Teresa. Yeah. She's the one, you know, who talked about the ripple effect when she said, yeah. I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across water and create many ripples. Yeah. And other, Mother Teresa other... also was the one who spoke about, if you want to change the world, first love your family. Yes, absolutely. Start with those closest to you, your yeah. family. That's right. Brené Brown. Yeah. Gosh. Who else? Actually, on Brené Brown, while you're thinking, and yeah. sorry to interrupt the th- thought process, but have you read her work yet with Alice of the Heart or seen the miniseries? Yeah, yeah. It's one of the books I have on my bedside table that I'm reading. I tend to, with, with Atlas of the Heart, there's so much to reflect on that I read a chapter and put it down and have to reflect and yeah. then come back to it. Yeah, so that was going to be my question. I found that work extraordinary, the nuances, the distinctions. I found that really extraordinary, and I think it's actually going to change the way, and I'm going to bring in a couple of things here. I hope that's okay, a little bit of a sidebar, but listening to a podcast yesterday morning with Adam Grant and Rethinking, and he was talking with a woman who's challenging the concept of emotional and the construct of emotional intelligence because it's become a form of she talks corporate control. Yeah. Right. So it's actually become a thing about diminishing people rather than building people up. Mm. And it was really interesting because in that conversation, they touched on, you know, is the definition of emotional intelligence gone askew? And one of the things I thought of was Brené's work. I think when you dig into what she's done with Atlas of the Heart, actually revolutionizes. And we don't even need that argument because you understand the impact and the breakdown of these words, the distinctions of the words. I feel as though Mm. it kind of takes us through into a deeper understanding of how emotions actually play out in the world. Yeah. 
what do you think of that when I say that? I know it's a big statement. It is a big statement. It really resonates with me. Yeah. yeah. She has a way, and particularly in, in this book, she has a way of stripping things back and being able to express such deep honesty and vulnerability and facts about the human condition in ways that are accessible but also confronting and compels you, doesn't just invite you but compels you, I think, to reflect on yourself. Yeah, it's an extraordinary piece of work. So those people who are listening who haven't unpacked all of that yet with Alice of the Heart, I encourage you to do so. Rabia, one of the things... I love about having got to know you is your level of complete compassion and and honesty. And you talk about the way that Brené can be incredibly vulnerable and Mm. strong, Mm. and you bring all of that to the table. Mm. One of the things I've noticed in my work is, and which is working with women to improve the strength of their voice and not necessarily become speakers, but just to reclaim the power of their voice. Mm. One of the things I'm noticing is that it's as if the strength of our outer voice can never outstrip the power of our inner voice. Yeah. That inner critic that pops up. Does that ever play out for you, that inner critic Absolutely. holding you back? Yep. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of my biggest weaknesses. Yeah. It's ironic because one of the things that I've realised, and I realise more and more as I get older, is that as women we have such incredible capacity in terms of our inner strength and resilience and capacity to live through, to survive through such hardship and such Mm. tragedy and such heartbreak. There's this inner strength that women have that I see show up more and more and more that I associate with power. But also we are our own worst enemies in terms of the inner critic, in terms of the sometimes unreasonably high expectations we have on ourselves, in terms of the guilt and the shame that we too readily go to in terms of our emotions or our thoughts that lead to the emotions. And I'm not immune from that. I think probably one of my biggest weaknesses that I am still trying to work through is that I am my harshest critic, that I have extraordinary high expectations of myself, that I can be self-sacrificing, that I can serve others and be so compassionate towards others and want to do good by others at times at the expense of myself. And I think for me, getting a bit deep, I think that comes from a realisation of the impact of childhood trauma, of the fact that deep down I, like so many people, derive some of my self-worth and self-love and self-appreciation and validation through my acts towards others. And service to others and compassion to others has been a way that I have derived my self-worth. So for me, the homework, the lifelong work, is to really arrive at a place where I can I can be compassionate and loving of myself and find that from within, not just from yeah. outside, if that makes sense. From those acts of service. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love if you are willing to share what are some of the 
strategies or uh, things that you've learned over time that help you deal with that inner critic? Because when they mm. flare, they can be pretty, they're pretty well screaming for attention. Absolutely. Look, it's a work in progress. But what yeah. I am finding is helping me is to go back to the child yeah, and to go back and to try and have conversations with the little girl, Rabia, yeah. because that's who shows up a lot when mm. I am in self-doubt and self-loathing and self-critical. Um, so it's to go back and to make her feel safe and to forgive her and to give her love and to remind her that she is unique and precious and special mm. and and worthy of love and kindness. And so that's probably, I guess that's the the work that I'm trying to do at the moment and yeah. also to be very discerning with the company that I keep, the people that mm. I surround myself, that I give trust to, that I will listen to, that I will confide in and making yeah. sure that they are people of integrity and real truth and of deep values. Yeah. When you do reach out to young Rabia and have those conversations, what do you notice happens to that inner critic? It quietens the inner critic. I go to a place that is softer, that's more forgiving. Emotion comes and compassion for myself comes. And a lot of the external distraction and noise falls away. Yeah. And I think I'm also able to um, more easily access the spiritual, which mm. is, which is, and also an answer to your question. I think the other way, the other strategy that I, if you'd call it a strategy, but the other thing that I am trying to commit to more and more is to look up and beyond myself, you know, whether you call it God, the universe, a higher power, committing to that spirituality and faith. Yeah. You and I definitely, share the same resonance when it comes to faith and surrender. So changing gears just a little because we can be quite intense in our conversations because I love what you do and what you're about. What is your superpower when it comes to raising your own Ooh, voice? My superpower. I think it's the ability to tell powerful and impactful stories in a way that empowers and inspires others to be their best selves and to impact change in their lives and in the lives of those around them. Yeah. When you, because I've mentioned already that you are now a professional speaker is one of your primary roles in this world and talking about storytelling, because I think storytelling is actually our gift to the world and the way that we create connection Absolutely. and trust. So when you talk about, you know, um, stories that inspire and empower and impact, what is one of the stories that when you use it from a platform oh. really lands with your audiences? What's one of the ones that they really lean into? One of the ones that I think has engaged people and had a big impact is a story about my own journey that I share. Yeah. The journey of being a hostage in Iraq when I was serving with the British Army, the way that I was silenced and ostracized and gagged and discriminated against after that, and yeah. the way that I came to the decision to hold the institution and the powers that be to account and speak truth to power and how I was able to get justice 
and right that wrong, not just for me, but in ways that had a ripple effect that brought yeah. about fundamental culture, cultural and attitudinal and behavioural change. That's one story that really that I have been told and that I've witnessed has inspired people yeah. to, in their own ways, speak up, stand up, call out behaviours, conduct, policies, systems, language that isn't serving those around them well. When you actually transition from fighting that fight, so going through that experience and then fighting that fight, and for many people being through something traumatic, mm. it is usually the unexpected consequences afterwards that shouldn't happen yeah. that actually create the damage. Yeah. So when you change gears to actually telling that story rather than fighting for that story, what were the major things that you had to do to become comfortable sharing that with the world? Because you've shown, you've shared it with the world through your book, yep. Equal Justice, and you speak frequently and prolifically now. Yeah. But when you were first shifting gears, when it went from fighting for this story to sharing this story, yeah. what did you have Good to draw question, on? Because it took years and years it took years and years for me to be convinced to share the story, firstly in the book and then, you know, through then sharing it on a stage, global, excuse me, globally. For me, what ultimately convinced me to share the story was the realisation of the impact that the human story has. The realisation yeah. that for 25 years as a human rights lawyer, I had actually been sharing the stories of others in order to help them access justice. And when I was able to equate it to professionally how I could see and how I could access the importance of the human story to impact change, that made me feel more comfortable. It wasn't about me. It was about the service yeah. that the story could, you know, how it could serve others. And also years of work, of therapy, yeah. of healing, of coming to a place, a safe place of resolve and closure and a greater, deeper understanding of not only what had happened and the reasons for it and the reasons why I did what I did and I reacted the way I did, but an acceptance and a level of forgiveness in a way that I was then able to safely share the story and ensure that others felt safe when sharing, you know, this quite extreme confronting story in ways that could give hope that was confronting, yeah. that would evoke emotion, but also that would inspire and ultimately be a message of hope and a call yeah. to action. So, yeah. you know, when, when one chooses to share impactful, confronting human stories, I think it's really important First of all, that you're safe, you do the work where you are safe before you can make yeah. other people safe. Yeah. So that's what it's I recommend one to of people the... all the time. I always caution people that want to share Racing their stories. To the stage. Yeah, don't yeah. race. Be very clear what your motivators are because if you're doing yeah. it for fame or for validation or for popularity or for therapy, that, no. that will yeah. always I'm, end I'm in disaster. Like... I'm literally like one word, no. Yeah. It's um, one of the maxims that I have that I share with the people I work with is when you have a big traumatic story, until you can speak with it to it with strength, power and grace, you cannot take to a stage with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you and I cannot. have, I'm sure, and people listening to this have know what we're talking about because you would have experienced yeah. and seen and heard people that have shared their story prematurely or that have yeah. spoken up and not being able to speak with the, mm. with you know with that grace 
and with that, I guess, integrity of motivators, you know, where there's been an ulterior agenda. You can feel it, you can sense it. People, you know, humans are so perceptive and observant and that can do more harm than good, not just for the individual but for those that you're seeking validation from. Yeah. When you said before about you being safe first and then so that the audience can be safe. And what I love about that, I quite often talk about you can't take an audience to somewhere you haven't been. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so if you actually have not created psychological safety for yourself in this, then there is no way that you can create psychological safety for your audience. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Because it's just, I, I'm getting really passionate about it. Yeah. I'm turning up at the moment to a lot of fundraising events where they've got lived experience survivors yeah. who are midstream of doing the work, who are speaking, and they are speaking from the heart yes. and they're raw and vulnerable. But you have audience members, like if you're in a room of two, three, four, 500 people, you don't know the histories and the positions of the people in front of you. That's right. And to create a safe environment, if you haven't taken yourself to a safe space already with this, you cannot take your audience there. I couldn't agree more. We don't know people's journeys and stories that come into the room. And the way that I always look at it is every time I go up on stage, I'm being called upon to hold people in the palm of my hand. So I must be able to do that with integrity, with safety, with confidence, with grace. If you can't do that, yeah, it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous. As you said, we, we, we are talking about psychological, mental, emotional safety when we are talking about sharing these confronting human stories. Yeah. yeah. How did you realise you were ready to share? I think it was when I was able to articulate clearly the value, the service and the impact that my story could bring. And for others and know deeply, authentically in myself that it wasn't a self-serving exercise, that it was truly to serve and benefit others, that I could see it being of value and that I was almost separate to that, that I was just a vessel. It wasn't about me. I was a conduit to the value, to the service, that the story, that the messages in all the stories could bring yeah yeah for those who haven't heard you that took years oh absolutely it's not fast is it it's no Um, shortcuts not at all but yeah I wish there were sometimes I I like I really want to put my hand up some days and say please land the shortcut in my lap (laughs) I'd be really happy with that and it's (laughs) it's a constant journey isn't it because our stories don't have until we draw our last breath our stories continue and we're constantly being thrown curveballs in life So, you know, um, and there are things that, you know, people listening now and you and me will be going through trying to reconcile and reckon with that we can't share, that we're not ready to share. So it is a journey and there are no shortcuts. And it's also about having, sorry, one last thing. It's also about having good judgment and good sense to make the right decisions about what you share and what you decide not to share because what you decide to leave out is just as important, sometimes more critical than what you decide to put out there and to share. 
Absolutely. When we're working with women in our world at the moment and we are doing story development and story creation, we very much talk about actually, you know, we have a format when they're first learning to put story together that only allows them to put five key chunks into the story. Right. And so it creates space for the audience. Yeah. And in that they have to make decisions. And those decisions are guided by what is the purpose of the message, yeah. not what is the story that I love to tell. Yes. And I listened to a podcast just recently. It was actually the podcast recommendation this month in the group. And again, Adam Grant, I'm binging him a little bit in yeah. the moment. We'll come to podcasts in a moment. But his new rethinking podcast series is amazing. And he had a podcast interview with Reese Witherspoon. Now, some listening will know that that's previously been challenging for me, but it was a brilliant podcast. But she said this really important thing. He actually asked her about, do you believe, one of his quick questions was, do you ever believe TikTok will take over movies as a format? And she went really quiet and she stayed quiet for quite a while. It was a significant bit of dead air. And then she said, I believe there'll always be a format for long form entertainment. But I also, so, and she said, but you can't take away the incredible skill and talent of these TikTok creators and the way that they can tell stories fast and capture attention fast. And so she said, I think it's evolution right? and we can't lament what was. But the next thing she said was so powerful. It's exactly what you were just talking about, I believe. She said, our question is not about what format do we want to tell it in. She said, we set up my company to produce movies. We then realized that was changing and we shifted gears to produce television content for streaming services. Mm. And she said, and I remember several meetings and we still get caught up in it now. She said, because our first love is movies. Mm. And their question, their guiding question is, hang on, do I want to tell stories the way I want to tell them? Or do I want to tell them in a way that will have will affect the most people possible? Mm. And I think it's the same when it comes to shifting and shaping our stories, mm. what we were just talking about. It's like when we go to tell a story, what you said about it's just important, what we leave out is what we put mm. in. It's because it's actually not about us. Like you said, you are the vessel to land this and it needs to speak into what your message is, what your act of service is, what it is that you want them to take away. What would you say? I know that was a long diatribe. (laughs) What would you sort of respond to that? Well, I absolutely agree. You know, it's not about me. It is about me in the sense that I need to ensure in my craft that the way I tell the story that I can relate it and I can share it in the most impactful, professional, engaging way, which for me yeah. is taking people on a journey, a journey of humanity yeah. in which they are invited and compelled to reflect on their own stories and to keep thinking and to be called to action and for the impact to live on beyond um, when my voice and my words end. So um, it is about me in the sense that I have to be the most effective and engaging vessel and voice um, voice piece, but you're setting the content, you're setting the story that you're sharing, whether it's your own journey or the stories of others, you're setting it free with no control in terms of how it's going to land and what parts are going to resonate with people and what parts um, are going to motivate people to act and what they're going to remember. So it's understanding and having that acceptance that you are setting it free to serve others and you will not have uh, control. And, and I you have to actually, be comfortable and confident in that, I think. I actually, I have, that has just melted my heart, that you have to understand that your role is to set it free. Yeah. 
that is exquisite. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. So speaking of the different ways that we have our voice and we've talked about, you know, you have written a book. What's your favourite book? Can you nominate a favourite or am I being really nasty? (laughs) I have so many books I've loved. Look, what's one that I always go back to that had a huge impact on me when I first started reading? Probably To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yes, divine. What my current favourite is, I've already referred to the book that I've just finished reading, which is How Many More Women? Yeah. So, and there are so many others. Yeah. Yeah, So many others. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I could be here all day telling you about some of the other books (laughs) that I like. We'll run with, how about if we just run with To Kill a Mockingbird? To Kill a Mockingbird and and How Many More Women. How many more women? One I have and one I'm about to get. So thank you so much for that. Now, I have a question to ask because sometimes when we love our books, we're actually not a prolific podcast listener. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. That's a more recent thing and I have to be in the mood. Yeah. But I I do. I, I kind of sway in and out of podcasts. So it's been pretty obvious in this particular episode that I'm a little bit obsessed with rethinking and Adam Grant yeah, yeah. right now. Is there a podcast series that gets your attention? Yeah, or that you the loved? one that I'm that I've been loving recently is to write, to speak about her again is Brené Brown's Unlocking Us. Yes. I love that. Yes. She's had some amazing episodes in the last, since she came back from her sabbatical. Yeah. I mean, it's always been really good, but yes, I'm a massive fan. It's on my, it's usually the first one I grab. Yeah. So yeah. I like her incredible. podcast and if we're talking about someone more locally, um, and I was really privileged to be interviewed by her as part of her podcast is Taria uh, Pitt. Um, oh, lovely. She, yeah. It's, she has um, some really interesting people and, and some fun, yeah. deep entertaining, real and honest conversations with a whole diverse range of people as well. So that, I mean, I've been enjoying her podcast too. Amazing. I'm going to have to go and add that one to the yeah, list now and check it out. Fantastic. So I want to wrap up oh, with just a couple more, of questions. One more. Um, one more. Another podcast that, again, I had the privilege of being a part of is uh, Brave Women. Oh. That's, that's a great podcast. Podcast. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to find that one. I haven't heard of that at all. So I look forward to anything that puts brave and women together has got my attention immediately. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Yeah. so over this very diverse and rich and varied life that you've led, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Worst piece of advice? Wow, I've been given a lot of crappy advice in my time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That apologising is a sign of weakness. Whoa. Yeah, that landed. That is definitely a crappy piece yeah. of advice. Yeah. Okay, so let's delete that yeah. one. Bad, Moving huh? forward. Yeah. Yeah, really bad, really, really bad. What about on the flip side? What's the best piece of advice? To thine own self be true. Yeah. One of the most beautifully simple pieces of advice and one of the most challenging. I think it's a lifelong lesson, that Absolutely. one. Absolutely. I think we have to keep it in front yeah. of us. And then as we wrap out, Ravi, it's been an amazing conversation. One more question, which is really just final pearls of wisdom that you'd love to leave with the ladies listening. Oh, gosh. Don't waste any of your precious time or energy worrying about what other people think. Live yeah. the life that you were born to live. Be true to yeah. your values. Speak up when you feel it's necessary. Be discerning in the battles you choose to fight and aspire to, above everything else, 
accept, forgive, be compassionate and love yourself. That can be some of the I hardest work. Absolutely. And know and believe Rabia. that you are unique and wondrous and a gift. We're all a gift and we're all blessed to be a blessing. Yes, we are. Rabia Sadiq, my friend, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, raise 1000 voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember you were born to raise your voice.